Happy Friday, everyone, and I want to encourage you as this final day of the study week comes to an end, that you go to your home congregation this weekend and fellowship and worship and study and celebrate and serve with all your brothers and sisters in Christ. Everyone needs a home church, and everyone needs to be active at that home church. If you don't have a place where you're doing all those things, go out and find one. And if you happen to be within driving distance of the Elkhart East building, would you please come visit us, check us out? Maybe we can be the place that you can finally settle down and call home. I want us to open to 1 Peter chapter 3, and as I so very often do, uh, in certain books, I need us to roll back several verses from where we finished yesterday so that we can get the context in our head and understand what we're pushing into next. 1 Peter 3, 17 has this, this statement that expresses what Peter is working on. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he's trying to deal with this, this attitude that some people might have, slaves being particularly the group that he was thinking about, that if they get in trouble, they're suffering for Christ. And Peter says, well, that's only true if you're not doing something that you should suffer for. Because you should get in trouble if you're not behaving yourself, if you're not doing the work you're supposed to be doing. But if you do suffer for being a Christian, for upholding God's principles, doing things God's way, then yes, that is something that you can be blessed for. And then he uses the ultimate example of that which would be Jesus. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Christ, even though he had done nothing worthy of being crucified, let alone being executed spiritually, he had it happen to him because he was accomplishing God's work. And he's, it says here that he might bring us to God. So that was Jesus' purpose, which is why Jesus allowed himself to suffer. Uh, Jesus said at one point, no one can take my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. So everything that happened on the Day of Atonement for Jesus' death and resurrection. All of that happened because Jesus allowed it to happen. Because Jesus knew it needed to happen for our benefit. Now, the interesting thing, which is really a kind of a side item, would be a couple of things that Peter says tying into this statement. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive again in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was intimately 
involved in bringing Jesus' physical body back to life, resurrecting him into his eternal body, his permanent body. And then Peter goes off on this side thought about what the Holy Spirit's been up to for millennia. Verse 19, in which or by whom, I would prefer the translation to be, by whom, because it's a reference to the Holy Spirit's work, by whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I will add a an italicized modifier here, if I'm doing my own translation, by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. So, in the day that Peter is writing this, there are certain spirits, dead people's spirits, who are in a place of confinement. Verse 20, because they formerly, so in the past, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So now we understand who these dead persons are that Peter is referring to. It's the people who heard the preaching of Noah and rejected it. Now, that preaching was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving through the prophet Noah. And the time limit that this preaching happened is mentioned next, while the ark was being prepared. So, while Noah was building the mechanism of physical salvation through the flood, he was preaching He was preaching the warning, you must repent of what you've been doing and start thinking things about, uh, thinking about things in the way that God thinks about it, and you need to get on board the ark. And that would have been pretty much the invitation of the preaching of Noah. But unfortunately, things were so degraded spiritually at that time in history the population was so far gone that Peter has to report this, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So only Noah, Mrs. Noah, there are three boys that were still living at home. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but because they were right around 600 when the flood began, Mr. and Mrs. Noah almost certainly had many, many other kids that drowned in the flood. Think about that. But the three boys that were under the age of 100, still at home, it says, and their their girlfriends, fiancés, if you will, their wives, it's only those eight people that made it through the flood water into the new life of the new world. Now, that's where we stopped last session. We are ready now to push into verse 21, which should be of interest to us in regard to the current time that the gospel is being preached. Verse number 21, he says, Immersion, 
And those of you that have been with me for a while, a while, you know that I prefer to go ahead and translate out the word baptism. Baptism is actually a Greek word. It doesn't tell you what it means. Uh, so I borrow, <laughs> I guess I should acknowledge this, I do borrow another language, uh, Latin's translation here, immersion, immersion, because that is better understood in our English context today, the dunking underwater. So immersion, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? The fact that you have to go through the water to get into the new world, right? That's what happened to those eight guys that were on the ark. They came through the water. So immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, I know, and you know, many of you, that this idea of baptism is a hot-button topic today. A lot of people don't like the idea of being baptized with water, being part of the conversion process. In fact, I have heard more than one person who should know better say, it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that baptism saves you. And of course, uh, that's what we just read here. Immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So don't let anybody contradict the Word of God, even a good preacher. Now, what's the real big thing that's is issue here? Well, historically, we've run into a problem where people have made immersion or even baptism in the sense of sprinkling water on a baby's head, into some sort of magical incantation. Uh, there are certain groups that teach it's got to be the right person doing the immersion or the baptism. It's got to be the right words that are used. The right type of water has to be used. And uh, everything has to be done in exactly a specific pattern or fashion. And if it doesn't happen that way, then you are not saved because you didn't follow the technicalities. And I have a big problem with that. That's called baptismal regenerationism, and I don't think it is scriptural. I don't think it's a scriptural attitude. And so I would be just as much fighting against that as a lot of other people would be. But in responding to that, a lot of other people go the other way. You know how it works, the whole pendulum effect. Uh, they think it's gone too far one way, so they fling it to the other side, and uh, that's just as bad an idea. And so you end up with people saying, there is no need for baptism. There is no need for immersion. Immersion doesn't save you. And I've got a problem with that too. And so I think we need to follow Paul's Holy Spirit ideal of moderation in all things, uh, that we need to do things according to the Scripture, do things according to God's directives. And that means studying things here, like we're doing right now from Scripture. This is what we know for a fact. Uh, Jesus, 
well, actually, we can go back further than that. God gave John the Immerser the responsibility to call the people of Israel to repentance to get ready for the coming of Yehoshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. You remember that his whole message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would tell people uh, that uh, if they were doing one thing, they needed to quit doing that and start doing the right thing. And the way that this was bundled up uh, in a God-given manner was dunking people under the water. Now, that wasn't a brand new idea. It had been happening ever since the time of Moses because uh, immersion as a sign of cleansing things, including people, uh, is part of the Mosaic law, part of the Mosaic covenant and procedures. Uh, In the first century, uh, Jewish households and Jewish neighborhoods were full of mikvaot, immersion tanks. And this is one of the things that I'm always interested in seeing as we go around uh, Israel on our tours there. Uh, All around the Temple Mount, there's tons of these immersion tanks because it was part and process of the Jewish way of getting mentally cleaned up, spiritually cleaned up, uh, before they went to the Temple Mount, before they went up to be with God and with God's people. And you did it with a physical ceremony. Uh, When Jesus gives the Great Commission to his apostles in Matthew chapter 28, what does he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, all the different ethnic groups, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them everything that I taught you. So Jesus made physical immersion part of the process of making disciples. I didn't do that. He did that. On the day of Pentecost, one of his disciples, the one he picked to give the gospel message the very first time it was preached on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem, Peter, uh, when he reaches the climax of his message, it says that the people were cut to the heart because of their their realization that they had killed the Messiah. They'd rejected uh, the Messiah. And they said to Peter and the others, well, what should we do? What are we supposed to do about this? What, how can we fix this? That's basically what they were asking. And in Acts 2.38, what does Peter do by the prompting of the Holy Spirit? He says, repent. You remember, that's the fancy word for change the way you're thinking. Bring your thinking into alignment with God's thinking, and that will cause you to do things God's way. So repent, each of you, and be immersed into the forgiveness of your sins. And the word into is the literal meaning of the preposition there. Uh, It is the idea of movement from one status to a different status. So get immersed out of your sinfulness 
into your forgiveness. Have a change of location. Uh, And uh, you will then receive not just the forgiveness of sins, but you will receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the this is the normal standard that you see in the New Testament book of Acts. People hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, they repent of their sins, and they end up being immersed. That was just the common standard. This verse, I think, is the one which most helpfully illustrates the intention of being immersed. Now, we know the symbolism of it. I mean, it's, it's the cleansing. We already talked about that. It is the dying and rising again. We've seen that before as well. It's the taking off an old pair of clothes that are dirty. That'd be your sins. Putting on the brand new clothes. That would be your forgiveness. And that comes through Jesus Christ. But why? Why does God want us to do it this way? Let's listen to the rest of what the Holy Spirit says through Peter here. Verse 21 again. Immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not about getting physically clean. That's not the purpose. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is our way of going, God, can I have salvation, please? Can I have that connection to Jesus? Can I die with him and then rise again with him into a new life? Can I please have that? It is our way of signaling that we're wanting in on the covenant relationship. Uh, It is interesting to me, and I'm not the first to point this out. I've heard plenty of other preachers do this, that you will have preachers give people things to do, to signal that they want to be part of salvation. So you will have people um, in the front of the church building saying things like this, every eye closed, every heart open. Now, how many of you would like to have Jesus as your Savior? Raise your hand. Now, I don't see that thing anywhere in Scripture. Any of you know of a place in Scripture that that's the way that the apostles or others invited people to accept Jesus as their Savior? No, of course you don't. Or maybe it's something like this. We're going to hand out some cards, and on that card there's the sinner's prayer. Would you please repeat that sinner's prayer with me and then sign your name, date it, and hand that back, and that will be your way of embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, again, do you see anything like that in Scripture? No. Or how about uh, the, the radio TV guys? Put your hand on the radio. Put your hand on the TV screen, right on my hand. And now repeat these words after me, and you can be saved. 
And then, of course, I'm going to do a little tongue-in-cheek here. And make sure you send in a donation so we can keep this up, right? Do you see any of that sort of stuff in Scripture? I heard one preacher on the radio uh, led the people on the prayer uh, in the, the, quote, sinner's prayer uh, at the end of his message. And then he said, I want you to go out in your backyard after you turn the radio off, and I want you to drive a stake into the ground. And every time you feel uh, that you're questioning whether or not you're saved, you go out there and you touch that stake and remember the day that you made this choice. Folks, none of that is really needed right here. The scripture says that water immersion, being buried with Jesus Christ in a physical ceremony, is the way that we ask God for a clean conscience by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anytime we talk about the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're actually talking about the power of the atonement. So immersion, the day we named the name of Jesus and repented of our sins and embraced him as our Savior, as our Lord, and were immersed into the physical waters of baptism, that's all we needed to get anchored. We can remember that date, right? We can remember that event. We can remember the feelings that we felt when that happened when we went under the water and came back up again. And so I really want to appeal to all of you that are listening today. Don't let an overreaction against baptismal regenerationism, which is not correct biblical teaching, do not let that swing the pendulum so far the other direction that you won't do or encourage the thing that God has given us as the ceremony for embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, immersion. All right? And if any of you have questions, comments, whatever you want to do on that, um, feel free to contact me. Thomas J. Short at Comcast.net is the way easiest to get a hold of me, and I'd be more than happy to go back and forth politely with you on this very topic. And, by the way, if you've never been immersed into Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you go out there and you find someone that is a believer and ask them to do it for you, help you with that. And uh, if you happen to be in the area and you want to get with me uh, and get this taken care of, you know I'd be more than open to that. Contact me, and uh, we'll, we'll get it done. So again, let me read verse 21, and then we'll move to verse 22. Immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. So after he accomplished his death and resurrection, you know he spent 40 days working with his apostles 
before he finally gave them that great commission and took them out to the Mile of Olives, and then he ascended on high in their very presence. And of course, you remember they were told by the angels as they were looking after his disappearing form that this same Jesus whom you saw taken away from you will come back in like manner. And so that is the next big event that we Christians are looking forward to. That that is the second coming of Jesus, his coming as our hope, uh, the day we will be transformed or resurrected and we'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will always be with him. So we're looking forward to that. Now in between the times of his first coming being wrapped up and his second coming occurring, he is at the right hand of God. So he is in this place of intercession where he is our high priest, as the book of Hebrews makes such a big deal out of, and we're going to soon be in that book of Hebrews. And he has all of the angels, and primarily I think we're talking about the the good angels, the righteous angels, and authorities and powers that have been subjected to him. And those would be perhaps a reference to Satan and his ilk that have been defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus is in control. He's in charge. He calls the shots. And he is right next to his Father, looking out for what's best for us and looking out for what's best for anyone else that needs still to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And uh, I will remind you of the, uh, the beginning of the Matthew 28 passage uh, that is paralleled here. And that is, Jesus said after his resurrection to his apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he is in charge because of what he did. Uh, his name, uh, Philippians chapter 2, that he received from the Father is because of his, his humility and his sacrifice and how he has now been given this name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. So I hope every last one of you have already embraced Jesus as your Savior and accept him as your Lord, and you are doing everything within your physical power to keep that gospel message going out there to the people that have not yet embraced it, that need to hear it and act on it. Have a great weekend and a great beginning to a new year.